I'm turning this morning to the book of Philemon once again, the book of Philemon, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 16 through the end of the chapter or verse 25. Philemon beginning in verse number 16, and we'll be looking through verse 25. I want to read verses 16 through 19, beginning there with verse 16. The Apostle Paul, penning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, Put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine hand. I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. We've been looking at this tremendously beautiful letter that the Apostle Paul is penning not only on behalf of Onesimus, but I also believe to the great benefit of Philemon. And the Apostle Paul has been pleading with Philemon for the restoration of Onesimus back to his former position as a servant in the household of Philemon. Of course, we know that Onesimus had at some point had stolen from his master Philemon. And as he was on the run, he ended up under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And the gospel had a glorious, effectual effect on him. And he was converted by the gospel. And so now the Apostle Paul, as we've learned, is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And he's writing this very pointed but very touching letter regarding how he ought to receive Onesimus back, even though Onesimus had stolen from the Master. We see here in verse 16 that, of course, Philemon and Onesimus are now both Christians. When someone is converted and becomes a Christian, uh, there is a change in the relationship. Uh, Now, other Christians are now known as brothers or brethren. They are now have a relationship that has been transformed. That no matter what they once were, no matter what they once were maybe guilty of, they now have a transformed relationship and they are now one of the brethren, one of the beloved. So we see Paul talking about this relationship in verse 16. We'll get into more detail in just a few moments. But then we see Paul make mention in verse 17 of how Paul identifies himself with Onesimus and identifies him as a partner of Philemon. Uh, So Paul is now talking about the relationship that not only does he have with Onesimus, but the relationship he has with Philemon. And he's referring now to Onesimus as one of ours. He is one of us. And he says, I want you to receive him as if you were receiving me. What a beautiful picture that this is leading to, which makes these words so powerful that Paul says in verses 18 through 19. We see further in verse 18, Paul voluntarily offers to assume any of the losses that Philemon had experienced because of Onesimus' theft. 
He says, I will assume all of his debt. I will take upon myself a bond with my own hand. I will pay it. This beautiful expression of put, my, put that on mine account is really the subject of the message today. But notice what Paul is doing. Paul is giving an illustration of the greatest ransom that's ever been paid in human history, and that was the ransom that Jesus Christ paid to the Father on behalf of your depraved, sin-sick soul. Paul says, I'll assume it. I'll take it. Wasn't me that did it, but I will assume the losses and I will pay them. And we see there in verse 19, Paul reminds his friend Philemon, I will repay it. Not only can you put it into my account, but I will repay everything plus more. What a beautiful picture. That's what that word besides. I'll pay even more. Whatever he owes you, I'll pay it plus more. Paul is really exhorting Philemon to really what we would have to understand as four very important Christian principles. He's exhorting Philemon to not only receive Onesimus, but also to forgive him, to rejoice in his conversion, and to be reconciled to the runaway servants. Onesimus, who had been converted, converted to the faith, Paul says, I'm sending him back now, and he's one of ours. There aren't many stories in Scripture, maybe I should rephrase that, there aren't many accounts in Scripture, stories gives the wrong impression, there aren't many accounts in Scripture that are so dear and so touching as this one. We see a side of Paul, the doctrinal giant, the theological professor who now speaks of the practicality of how do we put real doctrine into motion. Real theology, real doctrine is not talking about what you know, how much you know, but it's actually demonstrating the doctrine in which you believe, and that's what Paul is doing. Sound doctrine is going to demonstrate itself by the way Paul is handling Onesimus and what he's encouraging Philemon to do. So there's really three main headings we'll look at this morning. And again, that's overview of those verses. You've already, got it, you've already received a flavor of what this is about and this text is about. But again, we see in verses 16 and 17, our first heading, we see the appeal of Paul to receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. The appeal of Paul to receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Paul does not disregard the reality, remember, that he is a servant. Remember we talked last week how uh, this was Philemon's servant, and Paul would not keep him for himself. He said, I would keep him here, but he's your servant. He's not saying his status as your servant should change, but he says, I want you to look at him more than just a servant, but above a servant. I want you to look at him as a brother beloved, or how we would say, a beloved brother. Restore him back to his servanthood, but receive him now as a servant who is a brother in Christ. Paul did not believe for one moment that just because of his conversion that this should dissolve the relationship of servant and master between Philemon and Onesimus. But rather, it should strengthen it. 
Because now you have a servant who is a beloved brother. Now remember, we had to point out very uh, directly last week that when we see the word servant in Scripture, we're often our minds run to our definition of servant and slavery. And we think about the atrocities of, of our nation uh, many, many years ago of enslaving people. But many of these servants were servants voluntarily. They came and they would work for these masters. As a matter of fact, there were some in the servanthood who would remain a servant all of their lives. They would raise their families in the master's house. It was not, it was not a violent relationship on most account. But he says, he is still your servant. He is now a beloved brother, but he is still your servant. You know, we really ought to think about the, the reality of what Paul is writing here and how the relationship, of course, with Christ changed. The relationship with others changed. And it was all because of what the gospel of Jesus Christ had done for Onesimus. People struggle so many times to try to change relationships. They try to change, why don't I have a, a good relationship with certain individuals and people? Because the only thing that will change a relationship for the better and change a relationship for eternity is the relationship that is a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that which restores. It is that which reconciles people together. And of course, now this new relationship is there. Onesimus and Philemon now are brothers in Christ. Paul, in effect, is saying he is a beloved brother to me who was used by God as an instrument of his conversion, but he ought to be even more beloved to you. How much more should he be beloved to you? Can you imagine? Can you imagine Philemon's response to seeing Onesimus return as a different man? Still a servant, but a different man. Paul then says how special it is to him at the, end, the middle of verse 16, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He said not only is the relationship better in the Lord, but it's even better in person, in the flesh. Folks, you realize the greatest human relationships that God has given us, like He's given us the relationships of family and husbands and wives and parents and children and grandparents, but the greatest relationship we have is with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the greatest relationship we have, is to be able to look at one another and know and rejoice together and say, we are beloved brothers and sisters in Christ by the blessed blood of Jesus that was shed at Calvary. He ought to be more beloved to you, Paul says. He's of your household. He's now an object of your concern and prayers for a long time, and now you are one in Christ. I would say there's nothing more beautiful than seeing someone of your household come to know Christ. It's the prayer of every Christian parent that has a child, and from the very moment that child, maybe even by the time when the child is conceived, those parents begin praying that the Lord Jesus Christ will save their child. And I don't know of a greater joy that a parent has than to know one in their own house comes to know Christ and repents of their sins. And the parents just stand in awe and amazement that Christ saved their son or their daughter. This was one of Philemon's household. These servants were often not just another person, 
He was concerned about these people that were in his house. Paul, in effect, is asking him, receive Onesimus into your heart, receive him into your home, and receive him just as you would receive me if I was to come to you. So we see Paul's appeal to, of Paul, the appeal of Paul to receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Second heading, verses 18 and 19, we see the appeal of Paul to reckon Onesimus' debt to him. The appeal of Paul to reckon Onesimus' debt to him. Notice Paul again says, If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. The Old English and what the King James uses for something that is placed into the account of another is the word reckon. And that's what Paul is using here. He's, he is saying, reckon that to my account. In other words, if he's done something wrong, if he owes you something, if he has been, if he previously was a bad servant, whatever he took from you, whatever uh, he did that, that in, when he was with you before, whatever he did, damages, put it on my account. I'll repay it, he'll later say. If he owes you anything when he stole from you, I'll replace it. Charge it to me. Again, the glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says to the Father, Father, the sin of these people, reckon it to my account. Put it on me. That's the beauty of the gospel. What should have been remained in our account was our sin and our depravity and our corruption and our wickedness. And yet Christ said, put that on my account. Reckon their sin to me. Not that he was becoming a sinner, but that he was saying, I will take what they owe. Whatever they've done. And by the way, that means whatever they've done. The Apostle Paul, we know his story. I shouldn't make assumptions, but most of us know his story of what he once was. And in our modern day, there would be some that say, well, someone like the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he could never be saved. Listen, there is no body and no sin that is outside the reach of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the glory of it. Paul didn't even really know everything that Onesimus was guilty of, but he said, Philemon, reckon it to me. I'll take it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the response of Onesimus must have been to Paul's voluntary assumption of his debt? Imagine if somebody came to you this afternoon, and again, I hope this isn't a crude illustration, but said all of the debt that you owe, put it on my account. You don't know how much it is. It doesn't matter. Put it on my account. I'll take it. I'll pay it. Listen, Paul was not even fully aware of everything Onesimus did, wasn't fully aware of what Onesimus owed, but he said, put his debt on my account. Surely Onesimus would have to see the grace of Christ in Paul's actions. Folks, it's so important that this world 
not just brothers and sisters in Christ, but even an unbelieving world sees the grace of Christ being demonstrated in us in our day-to-day interactions. This gospel that we so hold so dear is not something to just be held up in a theological trap in our mind. It is absolutely supposed to be demonstrated so that people see grace. They don't just hear us talk about grace and sing about grace. They actually see grace. Onesimus had to have seen the grace of God not only in how God in a runaway situation leads providentially and by His sovereign hand to sit under the preaching of maybe the greatest preacher God ever put on this earth and he's converted. And then Paul demonstrates that same grace that saved him. What a great debt of sin was imputed, reckoned to the account of our Lord. And He paid in full what we owed. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter number 4. The, of course, the doctrinal high watermark of the Apostle Paul, if you were to choose the, the epistle that is the most doctrinally rich, it would have to be Romans. But in Romans 4 verse 7, he says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven whose sins are covered. You realize it doesn't say forgotten. It doesn't say that God just turned away and ignored sin. No, He said your sin has been forgiven and your sin has been covered. But blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Why did He not impute sin unto us? Is because He imputed and reckoned it to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture Paul in his letter is painting. Back in our text in verse 19, Paul says, I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. Now, there's some controversy as to why Paul made this statement. And the one that I I believe is to be true uh, is that there were counterfeit letters that were written and signed as if the Apostle Paul had written those letters. There are some that say this was due to Paul's later thorn in the flesh that affected his eyes. There's a lot of different things. I believe it was because there were some of those counterfeit letters that may have been in existence. And Philemon, he wanted Philemon to know, this is from my hand. This is me. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. And he makes a vow. This is a bond. This is a covenant, if you will. I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Paul pleads with Philemon to receive Onesimus freely. No strings attached. Don't ask anything else of him. Don't ask him to pay his former debts. Don't ask him to uh, give restitution for his offenses. Don't give him more responsibilities. In other words, anything that you feel that he owes you, I will repay it. And Paul says, I've written this with mine own hand. In other words, I'm signing off on this as a bond or a pledge that I will be faithful to what... I am saying to you. I am certainly glad 
that the, before the foundation of the world in that great covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that the covenant was made that Jesus Christ would be, He would be the propitiation. He would be the sacrifice. He would be the Savior of His people. And in that covenant before the foundation of the world, before any of us were even thought of, even conceived, before the world began, there was a covenant that was made that Jesus Christ would pay the sin debt of His people and would absorb the full wrath of God His Father upon Himself. He who knew no sin would become sin for us. He never broke that pledge. He never broke that covenant. The Apostle Paul says in the same type of language, I will repay it. Don't contend with Onesimus, Philemon is saying, whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. I want to read part of what Gill said on John Gill said on verse 19. This phrase, I will repay it, was not an expression of irony, nor a piece of vanity in Paul. He spoke seriously and heartily, and he meant what he said. Though Paul's circumstances were often so mean that he was forced to work with his own hands to minister to his own necessities. Yet such was his interest in the churches and their obligation to him on account of his personal and useful ministry to them that he could easily raise a sum of money among them upon any emergent occasion. So Philemon had a good surety and paymaster of the apostle, and this shows his great humility to be a bondsman for a servant. You realize Paul was putting himself really in debt to Philemon. He, to be a bondsman for a servant and to make good damages and debts brought on in a scandalous manner as also that surety ship in some cases is lawful, though it ought to be cautiously and for very good reasons entered into. In other words, this was not something to be bonded to lightly. This engagement of the apostle for Onesimus bears some resemblance with and may serve to illustrate the surety ship of Christ for his people. They and Onesimus being much in a like condition as he was an unprofitable and runaway servant, so they are all gone out of the way and together become unprofitable. And Christ engaged with his father to bring them back again and set them before him. His sufferings and death has brought them nigh, which were afar off. As he had wronged his master and was indebted to him, so they have injured the law of God, affronted his justice, and incurred his displeasure. And having owed to him more than 10,000 talents, and I love what Gil says here, and having nothing to pay, Christ engaged to satisfy law and justice to make reconciliation for them and to pay all their debts, all which He has accordingly done, their sins have been placed to His account, imputed to Him, charged upon Him, and He has bore them, and the punishment due to them, and so has satisfied for them and restored that which He took not away. Where in the world would we be if it would not be for the Lord Jesus Christ paying what we could not pay. We had 
nothing to pay. You have not paid a single cent, a single good work for the debt you owed and for your salvation. Christ has paid it. And He paid it in full. And He paid it to the satisfaction of a holy God that demanded that sin be paid for. He didn't ignore it. It had to be paid. Christ says, Father, they can't pay. They have nothing to pay. Do you see what an affront it is to God to even suggest that you paid for any part of your salvation by anything that you did? That is an abomination to God to think that you had something to pay. What were you paying with? All you have to offer is filthy rags. Onesimus didn't have anything to pay either. And Paul said, I'll take care of his debts. Paul, through much suffering and trial, preached the Gospel to Onesimus and now he says to Philemon, whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. But then he says a very interesting thing. He says, Albeit I do not say to thee, how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. This is a reference to that Philemon in some way was also converted by the gospel that was preached by Paul somewhere along the line. Paul himself is saying, Philemon, you yourself were saved by the preaching of the gospel. And that gospel, the Lord used me to do it. Now he's not being arrogant about this. Paul was not a self-promoter as so sadly we see in our day and age today. Where preachers just want to promote themselves. They want to promote their ministry. They want you to see what a success they are. They want you to see how many converts they have. Listen, only, only the, the, the roles of heaven know who's really, whose names are really written there. Only the Lamb's book of life contains the names of those who belong to Christ. We dare not take credit for a single soul that's converted. And Paul never boasted about what his eloquence was. He never boasted about his oratorical skills. He simply said, I will boast in the cross and the, and the, the, the Christ who was on that cross. And we're allowed to boast in Christ all we want. You can never give enough glory to Christ. But then Paul again, often I think a often neglected aspect of our Christian life. Remember, these doctrinally theological great truths ought to be applied and demonstrated. The third heading is the appeal of Paul to rejoice together with him. The appeal of Paul to rejoice together with him. He says, Philemon, he says, look at verse 20. He said, Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. This is simply Paul just saying, Philemon, let's rejoice together in this. Folks, there has been absolutely nothing, nothing that thrills the heart of another believer than to see someone converted. And if you have gotten numb to that, if you are numb to hearing about a true conversion of a soul, you've really got to consider and think about your spiritual condition. 
when it just simply becomes ho-hum, there's another one. No, it's a miracle of God every time a soul repents. And we should not treat it as something that is just commonplace. Some of you have been praying for loved ones for years and years and years. And I'm telling you, when God breaks through and He, he, he grants repentance to that soul, you are going to rejoice in a way that is unmeasurable by human standards. Paul is not just saying, hey, this, hey, good thing happened today. He said, let us rejoice. Rejoice in the realities of what's happened to this man. Remember who he once was. And now what he is. He's asking Philemon, rejoice with me. Nothing can be more joyous and more comforting than to see believers walking in love and obedience to the commands of Christ. After that conversion, there's nothing greater than to watch someone walk in obedience to Christ. And by the way, every true conversion is going to result in a walk of obedience. Don't let this crowd fool you that says you can get saved and then live. go on living like you once used to live. That's not true conversion. There is going to be a change in your life. You're going, to de- you're going to desire things that are different. You're going to delight in the Lord. You are not going to stay like you once were. Just like when Onesimus goes back, he's not going back to robbing Philemon. He's going back as a beloved brother and he's going to walk in obedience. In 3 John verses 3 and 4, John says this, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Listen to what he says. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, most parents and many parents have claimed that verse, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it's even on another level to where John was talking about anybody who is one of God's children, spiritual children who are now in the faith. He said, I rejoice that they're walking in truth. There's not an elder pastor on this planet who is in it for the right reasons that doesn't rejoice greatly when the flock that God has put under His leadership or whatever you want to call it is walking in truth. And there's nothing that will break a pastor elder's heart than to watch someone who was once walking in the truth not walk in that truth anymore. Apart from the conversion of a soul, The greatest rejoicing comes when a converted soul then walks in the truth. And I'm not talking about walking in the truth on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about walking in the truth just all day on Sunday or on Wednesday. I'm talking about walking in the truth every day of your life. Paul says, let's rejoice in this. Paul says in verse 21, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. It's an amazing anticipation that Paul is writing here. He's writing with an anticipation that Philemon is going to do the right thing. This is the characteristic he knows of men and women who love the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not reluctantly obey God. And again, if if God's Word and His commands to you are burdensome, again, you need to check your spiritual condition. 
This crowd that says God's commands are too heavy. There's something wrong, folks. There's something terribly wrong if walking in obedience to God is a burden to you. God is just, He is just so rigid. He's got so many tight boundaries. The reality is, as we walk in delight, because we know that our sins have been paid. We joy in obedience. We walk according to His commandments. We don't do anything because it's expected. We do it because we want to do it. Listen, you don't have to beg people who really desire and love Christ above everything else. You don't have to beg them to do anything. Listen, I I came from the camps that that's what you did. You just begged people and manipulated their emotions until they felt guilty and then they responded by doing something. That's not biblical and that's not the way of Christ. You don't have to twist arms to get people to walk in obedience to Christ. They will follow whom they love the most. You can tell what people love the most by what they give their most, the most of their time to. People say they love the Lord, but they give the Lord nothing. They give the Lord no time. They give the Lord nothing except a few measly hours on Sunday. And they say, God, I paid my dues. That's not walking in truth. It's not a matter of what do I have to do. It's what can I do. What can I do for the Lord who loved me so? That's really what Paul is stating here. He knows Philemon's not only going to do what's right, but he's going to go above and beyond that because that's what brothers and sisters in Christ do. Philemon is obviously motivated by a love for Christ. And then Paul, as he brings this letter to a close, he finishes it as he does so many of his epistles. He says in verse 22, "...but withal prepare me also a lodging." Or in other words, prepare a place for me to stay. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Paul says, as you pray, I'm praying and believing with confidence that God is going to allow me to come and be with you again. The privilege of visiting with you, the privilege of ministering the gospel again to your household. Paul had a confidence in this. And then he finishes the letter by giving the names of those who have served faithfully with him. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And we won't go into great detail about all of these individuals, but these were fellow laborers. These were fellow helpers. These were others that Paul says, these are others who send their greetings. Paul calls them fellow workers. We are all fellow workers in the gospel of Christ. It is not about office. It is not about, well, the pastor and the elders are the laborers. We're all to be laborers in the gospel. It's not just the job of one or some, 
And it's not a job. Sharing the gospel is not a job. It should be the most natural thing we do. And again, you might say today, and I'm saying to myself, preacher, then why? Why don't I always speak when I should speak? Why do I not always stand up for Christ when I should? Well, I think it's a lot like when Peter was walking to the Lord. You take your eyes off of Christ just long enough and you get worried and concerned and bogged down by every other circumstance in your life. And we forget about the most glorious message we have is the gospel which saved us. Paul ends his letter by that word we love so much. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is what we refer to as a benediction. There are many benedictions throughout the scriptures. These benedictions are good parting words. They are words meant to, to bestow upon the reader blessing and favor. What Paul is asking for and he's, de he's declaring is the blessing and the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. One of the greatest benedictions we can give to one another, even after we leave a corporate time of worship, is may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Because what you're doing is you're giving a parting word of the greatest blessing that can be bestowed upon someone, and that's the grace of God. Oftentimes, I think we miss the reality that Paul himself was one who even found joy in God in the midst of suffering. Paul suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And yet, he was always rejoicing. Paul, a prisoner. That's how the letter started three weeks ago, remember? Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, was rejoicing. Grace is the very best prayer that we could pray for ourselves and pray for one another. Every bit of grace that we have, every bit of grace that we enjoy and experience is because what Jesus Christ purchased for us. Folks, I don't know what else we need in this world, but people talk all the time and say, I'm just not happy in this world. You realize that's not the reason you were saved is to be happy, but there should be no more happy people on this planet than believers in Christ. Then why are we walking around so sour all the time? Why are we walking as people who do not have hope when we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Your debt's been paid. You do not owe a single thing for your sin. And it's not because you were worth it. And it's not because you were worthy. It's because of the glorious mystery of God's sovereign grace that you can say, I am one of the beloved. Maybe we weren't saved to be happy, but we should be. Try talking to somebody about the Lord and you say it in such a way that it sounds like you're giving them a disease. There's nothing more glorious than the gospel of Christ. Everything we do until God calls us out of this world 
ought to live out these Christian principles, especially with regard to when we see someone come to Christ, even if they have a past and a history that nobody wants to be anywhere near. We ought to receive them, forgive them, rejoice, rejoice with them, and if need be, be reconciled to them. That's the beauty of what the gospel does. I hope this will encourage us this morning. Well, as we close this time together in the Word, we'll continue to prepare our hearts for when we'll observe the supper after our next service. Let's turn to hymn number 208.